thank you very much for joining us today from OBS headquarters in Madrid, Giannis Exarchos. Sunny Madrid, I hear. Thank you very, very much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us on Around the Rings Radio. You, you just completed a, a swing through Asia, uh, got back to Europe a couple of days ago. You were in Beijing, Tokyo, the sites of the next summer and winter Olympics. Uh, how's it looking? Uh, I guess you started out in, in Beijing first, planning for the very, Winter Olympics. It looks very, very uh, optimistic. Um, first of all, because of um, the level and quality of preparation for the Games of 2022 in Beijing, which is already um, very, very evident that, that those preparations are well advanced. We had there our first world broadcaster briefing, so we gathered the major rights-holding broadcasters in, in Beijing so that we give an opportunity to the organizing committee to present the concept of the Games, the basic plans, the venues, um, the schedule, and so on. And also ourselves on the OBS side to explain to them uh, how we're thinking about the games, what do we think will be new in these games, how do we want to approach, and, and of course, most importantly, to listen to the broadcasts. As you know, um, they are some of the largest um, broadcast organizations in the world, you know, from NBC, Discovery, BBC, a Japanese uh, consortium of broadcasters, CCTV. They have a huge Olympic experience. They're long-term partners, and, and they know and understand games. So it's always very interesting to, to listen to them as well and see how they feel about the games of, um, uh, of Beijing. So I must say that um, this was one of the best most well-prepared and most effective and efficient broadcaster briefing in recent memory. Um, the level of preparation of the organizing committee is really extraordinary, but I think what is most important is the shared concept of the Games, because this is not an effort to repeat the success of Beijing 2008. This uh, builds on the experience of 2008, but it has a vision which goes far beyond that. They have a vision to do uh, extremely sustainable games, um, uh, extremely intelligent games, uh, using uh, lots of innovative technology. And most importantly, they are thinking of doing these games as an inspiration to their own people. They have this incredible um, vision of inspiring close to 300 million people to embrace winter sports. You understand that that, that in itself may be the most, um, uh, how can I say, the, the most uh, ambitious, uh, ambitious <laughs> occasion that anybody has had in, in, in the history of definitely winter sports. It may be a game changer. So it's, it's very exciting to, to see this uh, coming together as we are now three years before the game. And any, any, we don't think of Beijing as a place for winter sport, but it will be the place to go in three years for the uh, for the, for the Winter Olympics. Does that factor in and their ability to properly prepare? Does it make yeah. a difference it, that this yeah. is all new it, to them? 
it's it's interesting that that the perception of Beijing, the international perception, is not really of a winter destination. Now, for me, who have lived in Beijing for three and a half years, of course, I know that there isn't just the the warm and, and humid summer of Beijing. There is also winter, which is very very cold and and very dry. And also that very close to Beijing, in in the mountains around, there are very cold conditions and there is snow and so on. Uh, I must. Uh, admit also that personally, when I was living in Beijing, I tried to restart doing uh, a little bit of skiing because there was already a small ski right. resort near Beijing where, where I was going. You know, this effort ended up being uh, me being more like an avalanche rather than a, a true skier. <laughs> you, you <did. laughs> just, the skis don't like you, huh? <laughs> You cannot expect from a Greek to be <laughs> a great uh, winter skier. But, great but, skiers uh, from Greece. Let's... But this is just to say that the concept of you know winter sports is not foreign at all. And, and the facilities that are being created there, of course, will be first class. And accessibility from Beijing will be very, very fast with with the new fast train line that, that's being built. This will be less than an hour away from uh, Beijing. Actually, one uh, part of the Games will be half an hour away from Beijing, the other one hour away. And um, I think this brings the city close to um, to the winter sports. Of course, um, you cannot say that, that China has, has the tradition of, of winter sports, but I must say that, that the Olympics are a lot about uh, creating futures and breaking traditions. It's, uh, you need something as big as the Olympics if you have a big vision to really turn and inspire people to, to take up massively sports. This is part of the beauty of the Olympics. They, they can change the attitude, the culture, the environment, the approach, and the love of people for sports. The, the, the scenes that we'll see in Beijing in the 2022 Winter Olympics, uh, not necessarily charming setting of an alpine village or that, that, sort, of, that sort of imagery that we can expect. What will it look like? There's, there's not a lot of snow in the mountains there. It's not necessarily the most picturesque place to have a Winter Olympic Games, but it, it, it will be there. How will it look on TV? Yeah, yeah actually, the, the two specific areas where most of the venues are, so um, the Alpine Cluster, which is in Yanjing, and, um, and the other cluster with, with mostly the Nordic sports, the actual sports where, where competition will take place, where the venues are, are um, areas of, uh, uh, of extreme physical beauty. And I, and I think people will see that and will realize they are very cold places, in the specific areas of the venues, there usually uh, is natural snow. It's also very, very windy. But we need to understand also that there is um, a very significant effort to create truly um, um, an uh, alpine resort kind of atmosphere. Because precisely when you have as an ambition to move so many people in, into uh, doing winter sports, you have to create the infrastructure and the conditions like uh, accommodation and so on. So all the plans for, for accommodation, I think that they are very much 
uh, in line with creating a very uh, sort of alpine atmosphere, and um, and I think it would be it it would be uh, really looking. Uh, very well, I can say from the point of view of television, I'm pretty convinced. I have been in these areas a couple of times, and um, you know, I think that uh, it will actually look stunning some days. How how will the Winter Olympic broadcast be any different uh, from what we had in in Pyeongchang a year ago, or is there something new, different that you're planning for for these games? You know. And, you know, as well as I do that, we live in um, extremely um, revolu- in revolutionary times in, in media, especially in digital media. And, uh, of course, uh, the Olympic broadcast needs to recognize these changes and needs to, uh, to embrace these changes uh, with, uh, with Pyeongchang and Rio. Um, the consumption and, and the broadcast in terms of volume of um, you know, broadcasting content around the world on digital actually has become even more than on linear and traditional television. People still consume more on, on linear, but broadcast on digital is growing exponentially. And at, I do not see uh, the growth of digital just as a different medium of distribution. I see that as also an opportunity to change and enhance the storytelling because at the end of the day this is what we do we tell we try to tell the stories of the greatest athletes in the world in the united setting of, of the host cities so i believe that all emerging uh, uh, technologies provide us with tools and opportunities to tell the story in a far more uh, personalized and far more immersive way. Um, this is why uh, we have so much focus. Of course, we will always be improving and innovating on our traditional coverage. Already in Tokyo, uh, we will most likely do um, um, the whole coverage of the games so originally in, in 4K HDR. But, but this is a natural progression. What I think is, is, is uh, even more interesting is that we will be increasingly interested in doing things, uh, incorporating um, augmented reality, uh, artificial intelligence, and implementing and using cloud technologies. That means technologies that are not natively from the broadcast industry that are core technologies that um, emerge today in the world and that I believe can have a huge impact also in broadcasting. Actually, in, in, in China, we have set up a small <clears throat> innovation group with some uh, uh, local innovators. I, I, I don't think that I need to remind everybody that China is already the number two uh, power in terms of technology innovation in the world after the, after the United States. And, and Beijing is now one of the five or six major innovation centers in the world. So there are lots of uh, um, uh, very intelligent and creative people. And we, have, uh, we are in touch with some of them to test some things that have not done before, especially around artificial intelligence and around the use of, of cloud technologies. Yeah, we're talking with Yanis Exarchos, Director of Olympic Broadcasting Services from Madrid, where he's uh, a little jet-lagged after returning from a well, a week, couple of weeks in uh, in Asia, where he visited Beijing and Tokyo, the site of the next Summer Olympics. In, in Tokyo, things are going pretty well, I would imagine. It, it, I think it 
be uh, one of the ideal places to have an Olympic Games as far as uh, broadcasting services is concerned. That's very true. I don't think that I'm saying something very new. I think that everybody can imagine that uh, Japan, uh, with their uh, very detailed and very sophisticated approach to everything and to organization, they are very much ahead of the games. It's one of the um, most advanced preparations that I can remember in any uh, recent games. So we have the feeling, and all broadcasters have the feeling, that we are in extremely good hands. Uh, again, the will be a very strong component of technology and new technology in the coverage of um, of Tokyo and uh, and overall I must say that it is a joy working with um, our uh, Japanese folks and uh, and the organizing committee. We don't really have any uh, major concerns. There will always be details to be refined through the test events that will mostly take place this coming summer. But all in all, I think that we are set for a fantastic game. Now, if you add to that the importance that the Japanese attach to the Olympic Games, we need to remember that in the collective memory of these people, the Olympic Games of 64 are completely identified with the, emer- the re-emergence of Japan in the international stage. So one understands how, how special the relations, the love, the support, the appreciation they have for the five rings. And this will resonate during the games as well. Yeah. Um, there, in, in past games, you've had to worry, for example, about whether the IBC, the International Broadcasting Center, would be uh, done in time or it was properly outfitted. You don't have those kinds of concerns in Tokyo. We don't because actually we were lucky enough to be able to use an existing facility, the uh, Tokyo Big Side, which is um, a very important international exhibition center. It's a fantastic uh, space. It is a little bit small, but it was a great opportunity for us to think of innovative ways of organizing the IBC. This IBC will be 20% smaller than the IBC in Rio, even though the intensity and volume of production will be much, much bigger. But we have introduced a number of innovations around uh, cloud technologies and so on that allow us to do that. But there is no worry whatsoever. The venue is already there. Um, uh, We have great cooperation. We will use it for a shorter period of time than any previous IBC, and and we have no concerns at all. The the idea of a new norm, uh, a way of doing things in a more uh, efficient, uh, less costly manner, across the Olympics is, uh, is, is an important uh, part of Thomas Bach's administration as IOC president. How is that reflected in what, the kind of work that you do at, at, at OBS? What, do you, what are you doing to... Uh, very much, very much so. Actually, I can say that for us, the new norm had to start earlier. Uh, I think that uh, we came to a realization at the end of the Beijing Games of 2008 that with increased demand from broadcasters for more and con- more content, more and more coverage, it wouldn't really be sustainable to continue doing things in the traditional way. So already since those days, we started introducing a number of 
initiatives that would allow broadcasters to actually do more with less. That entailed more production, more central production from uh, OBS. Uh, we made available more bookable services from broadcasters. We encouraged them to take more ready-made products to receive our signals, not just in the IBC, but back home. It's, it's dozens of initiatives like that we have made. And I must say that after the um, after the games of Rio and uh, looking ahead to the games in, in Asia, we started introducing very, very aggressively new ideas that are uh, based on technology and that result precisely in us being able and enabling broadcasters to actually do more with far less. So for us, new norm is not about just about cutting costs, it's actually about uh, multiplying efficiencies because we believe that technology, modern technology allows that. One clear example is the use we start making of cloud technologies. We are very lucky that we have a partner in Alibaba which is one of the uh, leaders in the world in terms of cloud technologies and that we have the capacity together to develop a custom-made cloud uh, platform for broadcasters, the OBS cloud. Uh, what does this mean? And this means that broadcasters will have the possibility from anywhere in the world, from back in their facilities, from the venues and so on, without using more hardware, without using more equipment, to access signals, to do editing, to publish on social media and so on. This is a very, very big deal for us. A big objective is to sort of dematerialize broadcasting, to, to, to help broadcasters stop shipping hundreds of tons of equipment from one part of the world to the other. This is what it is. So yes, the games in Tokyo, are impact in the games will be less in terms of space, volume and services, but the output will be far, far bigger. Let me give you one, uh, one simple number. In uh, the games of Torino, the host broadcaster, Tobo, produced 1,000 hours of broadcasting. In the games of Pyeongchang, OBS produced 5,000 hours. That's five times more. That's five times more. And the competition itself is less than 1,000 hours. So all the incremental coverage is really different types of products that we produce so that broadcasters don't need to send more crews, more journalists, more equipment in the city to do it. And they can access them from wherever they are. Because modern media are hungry, as you know, for content, and this is how we felt we could um, we could help them. Tokyo, though, it's while it's uh, relatively well prepared for the Olympics, the venues in Tokyo will be spread out a bit. It's not necessarily the most compact Olympics. We have cycling, for example, an hour and a half away from from Tokyo the yachting some distance away, uh, basketball about 50, an hour, hour drive away from, from Tokyo. Will, will that be a challenge that you have to address? I think that it will be a minor challenge again. They are not that spread out in terms of actual geography or in terms of actual time that you need to, to, to get there. I think the major difference in cities like Tokyo is that you don't have a major games hub like an Olympic Park. 
This does make a difference because it's true that the aggregation of a number of venues around a major area or an Olympic Park do create some um, efficiencies of scale. There's no doubt about it. However, um, the whole set of venues which are around the Daiba in, in the port space do create opportunities for efficiencies like that and in broadcasting we have used them so uh, venues like for beach volleyball triathlon for the new active sports for uh, three on three for um, um, uh, for climbing and so on but also uh, swimming is very very close those venues are really within uh, walking distances between themselves and do create similar opportunities from a technology and infrastructure point of view as uh, having an Olympic Park. So this is somewhat compensated by it. And also we need to take into consideration that we're talking about a country with an extremely developed infrastructure, extremely developed uh, transport system, you know, that, that works you know, with, with legendary precision. So even though there are a few venues which are a little bit spread out, I don't think that this would be a major, a major issue. And again, allowing for spread out venues has helped also Tokyo make much more cost-effective venues. Uh, uh, this has been really a contribution in terms of new norm initiatives. We're talking with OBS director Yanis Exarchos on this edition of Around the Rings Radio. He's talking to us from OBS headquarters in Madrid, Spain. Uh, you mentioned this earlier, the the migration from the large screen to the small screen that's taken place in in, in sports media. Um, how is that influencing what OBS produces, the actual pictures and content that you you develop? Yeah, very much so. And, and, and actually, specifically for sports and live sports, I think that it's not easy yet to speak about actual migration because the interesting phenomenon that we see is that digital consumption is multiplying, but this does not really yet have a dramatic effect on on traditional broadcasting. We now know that a lot of digital consumption is actually still driving linear consumption. So people are watching on their mobile phones while they're at work or on the bus going to their work or throughout the day uh, events or snippets or short videos and then they still go back home and, and watch on the big screen and, and appreciate the beauty of the, of the competition. So live sport somehow is the last big holding bastion of, of traditional broadcasting. Uh, but it does affect very much, of course, the way uh, we do things. On one hand, we need to still continue supporting and innovating on traditional broadcasting, but we need to constantly have in our mind how uh, the games will be consumed also on smaller screens and on digital. And this is where work, um, things like working a lot with uh, analytics, with uh, uh, with interactivity, with digital tools, a lot with data uh, becomes very, very important. And, and also we are looking into ways of not producing in uh, parallel for every single um, uh, 
potential usage in terms of media, but using a common core of production uh, for several different products. So we have our digital offerings, our Olympic video player, we have the Content Plus platform, which is for social media, we have our MDS, which are satellite distribution and fiber distribution. All those are content-related products, but we use the product we uh, produce for every single of them for the use of every other. So we have organized uh, our work in a sort of digital way that it's a bi-media organization that helps us uh, become efficient. But of course, what is the ultimate product on digital is super, super important for the success of the games long term and especially for embracing younger generations. And the younger generation is supposed to be at the uh, uh, the, the, the target, the focus of the Olympic Channel, the uh, over-the-top network that's uh, been created under under you there at there at OBS. It's in its third year. There are, I think, thousands of of videos and other pieces of content to to view on the site. Uh, you have li- live coverage of sports events, streaming coverage of sports events. It's, it's quite a, a rich experience of, of content that you've been able to put together. What have you learned in this, in this time, in this three years? And, and, and this has been our, our um, preoccupation and key objective from the get-go, to make sure that uh, we could, in a pretty short period of time, be in a position to um, cover all different sports and, and also to, to reflect the, the universality of the, of the five rings by producing content that's relevant, not just to a few uh, countries with, with big uh, sport event, uh, with big uh, sport success and so on, but with uh, every country of the world. So we are proud that we have produced so far in these two and a half years more than 12,500 different pieces of content that cover every sport and not just the Olympic sports, but beyond even sports that are not on the um, uh, Olympic program, that we have um, uh, pieces of content for every single nation that uh, has an NOC for 216 nations, that we have recently um, uh, launched on the platform also dedicated space for more than 130,000 athletes from the history of the Olympic Games with uh, dedicated biographies for the younger one connection to their social media and so on. On top of that, we have carried in those two and a half years uh, more than 1,800 different competition events of, of, of different sports. And we engage also, we have a strategy of being present not just on our own platform but also being present in the major digital platforms and social media platforms we have created in partnership with our rights holders in different parts of the world like the united states with nbc a linear cable version of the olympic channel as we have done uh, also in uh, in middle east with with being we have done uh, uh, lots of things with um, with global in brazil and we are now in uh, very advanced discussions with CCTV in China, we already operate in Japan. So it's a multifaceted operation. The objective has been to embrace 
primarily the younger generation, the millennial generation, because we all realize that, that the younger generation probably has less opportunities than uh, we did to, to embrace sports. They live in a far more competitive and congested world. So it's very important to highlight the, and inspire them about embracing sports and, and highlight the fun of it and, and, and the importance and the importance in building better societies and life. And we're happy because our demographics reflect that, that our effort seems to be uh, successful. Almost 80% of our followers are uh, of uh, an age of 35 and below. For those who are more savvy of uh, sports demographics, they understand that this is a very, very significant improvement compared to average following of sports, which is much higher uh, ages in, in general. Um, the interesting thing, with, with uh, especially with digital, is, as you said, that, that you learn a lot. You test things every day and you learn a lot because you can measure immediately the impact the consumption, what people like, what people don't uh, don't like, and 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 so on. Um, I think it's very interesting to to differentiate between two things that that the things that people like on uh, watching mostly on social media platforms like uh, like Facebook and so on are of course uh, far shorter videos and usually uh, videos of um, uh, far more casual style, whereas when they come on their platform, um, the duration of their engagement changes dramatically. They spend far more time and they want to be watching more premium type of content. So deep storytelling. Some of the Contents with more success on our on our platform has been the uh, high quality produced documentaries that we do in partnership with with the legendary producer Frank Marshall, um, like the story of the Czech team of hockey or the, the Cuban team. The Cuban fighters. And, yes. and so on. It's incredible to see in days where they say people ah, don't consume long-form content and so on, to see the engagement and, and people watching, you know, for 40 or 45 minutes, that people in digital know that those are exotic numbers. Also, recently we launched on connected devices, you know, on Apple TV, on Roku, on, um, on Amazon, on Android, and so on. And you see there also very, very long um, uh, video um, uh, watching durations. That means that there is also a selectivity and an art around what you are actually posting where. Not everything works in the same way in, in, in different platforms. It's, it's a learning process. We learn as things also change, but it's an incredibly exciting project. And you, you are in this next week on the Olympic Channel coming days. You have women's bobsleigh, you have track cycling, and you have the Universiad from, uh, from Krasnoyar in, in, in Siberia, which is not uh, an IOC event, not an Olympic event, but it's still part of the Olympic Channel. How does that, how does that work, and, and, and why include these non-Olympic events? Because uh, the IOC, uh, of course, uh, the one most prominent thing that the IOC does is organize the Olympic Games. But the IOC is about creating a better life through sports. It's, uh, it's, it's about inspiring people to take up 
sports. So uh, the IOC has never been, um, uh, how can I say, uh, ring-fenced or, or put a firewall with, with other sports, provided sports follow the, um, the values of the Olympic Charter, which is all about inclusion, about um, uh, friendship, respect and excellence. Uh, ourselves, as a part of the Olympic movement and the IOC, we have no reason to limit ourselves only in the Olympic event. We are about promoting uh, sport at large. And this is not just limited. We may have a number of sports in the Olympic Games because it's it's physically impossible to include all sports in, in the Olympic sports. But this doesn't mean that we do not care for the development of every single sport in the world, provided it follows and supports the same ideas and the same values that, that the IOC stands for. And this is the reason. There was never a doubt in our mind and in our discussion with the IOC, with the president of the IOC, whether we should be doing that. It was always, of course, we should be doing whatever we can to promote sports at large. And there are some sports that are not on the Olympic Channel right now that you don't have agreements with, IWAF notable among them. Um, where, where are things going with, with that relationship? Is that something that can be, um, can you come to terms with them or will... Actually, yes. The, uh, if I remember correctly, there are only two federations that we don't have a formal agreement with. One is IWAF. The uh, other is um, biathlon among the winter sports. But again, this does not stop us from constantly producing content and promoting uh, the sport. If you go to, to the channel and look for it, you would see that a very, very significant amount of the content is about athletics and, and, and track and field, as it is about biathlon and so on. We have not yet um, reached a formalized agreement as we have done with uh, 77 other organizations. But uh, uh, for us, the, and I hope we, we may have with them in, in the future, but uh, this does not really stop us from uh, doing our mission, which is to promote these sports as well. Well, Yanis Exarchos, thanks very much for, for joining us today. It's been a, been a great pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you very, very much. Ed. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Yanis Exarchos, Director of Olympic Broadcasting Services, speaking with us today from, from headquarters of OBS in Madrid, Spain. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Around the Rings Radio. I'm Ed Hula. For more than 25 years, your best source of news about the Olympics is AroundTheRings.com.